So Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 27. You will fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if I fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the cock crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Do uh, please keep that passage open. Uh, We'll spend the next few minutes uh, looking at it together. In 1964, David Cornwell lost his job after being betrayed by a colleague. But this wasn't just office politics at play. David Cornwell was an intelligence officer at MI6, and the colleague in question was Kim Philby, another MI6 officer who had been exposed as a traitor. For 20 years, uh, Philby had been passing secrets to the Soviet Union. And once exposed, he fled to Moscow, where he betrayed the identities of many intelligence officers. And so David Cornwell's career was over. 
Years later, under the pen name John Le Carre, he wrote the book Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which is about the hunt uh, for a traitor in MI6 with the code name of Gerald, very British. Uh, and when the true name, uh, true identity of Gerald, the traitor is revealed, um, the book tries to make sense of the nature of identity and betrayal. Trying to understand how this uh, guy, this Gerald, had managed to deceive so many people around him. So many people who knew him well. Like Harry uses this uh, image um, of a Russian wooden doll that opens up, revealing another person inside the first one, and then yet another person inside the second. The idea is that no one had truly seen the last little doll inside Gerald. No one actually knew what he was truly like. Apparently, when the FBI director at the time heard about the betrayal of Kim Philby, he's supposed to have said, well, tell them that Jesus Christ only had 12, and one of them was a double agent. Indeed, some of the elements in our passage this morning would not be out of place in the spy thriller, would they? We've got betrayal, we've got graphic violence, we've even got unnecessary and highly questionable nudity. See, as Jesus gets closer to the cross, we see many of the people around him showing where their loyalties truly lie. We see their true character coming out. Crowds that once shouted his praises will now shout for his death. Religious authorities will finally overcome their fear of the people to put Jesus on trial and have him killed. But in this part of Mark 14, we particularly see Jesus being abandoned and being betrayed by those who are close to him, his, uh, the disciples. Even the inner circle of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, end up letting Jesus down. So, first of all, we're going to see treachery, uh, treachery and tragedy. Treachery and tragedy. Sermon titles today brought to you by the Jane Austen Foundation. So, throughout Mark's account so far, we've seen so many different responses to Jesus, haven't we? And in this part, we actually see four different kinds of betrayal. Now, we're going to kind of consider them, in, not in chronological order, but uh, in the order of kind of how obvious they are, going from the most blatant through to the most subtle. So, first of all, we see uh, outright rebellion. Outright rebellion. So uh, verse 43, an armed crowd comes to arrest Jesus, uh, sent by the religious leaders of the day. Now in the last few chapters of Mark, uh, religious leaders had done their best to challenge, to discredit Jesus. But now the moment that they've been waiting for has come, the chance to arrest Jesus. Uh, And this armed armed mob has been sent uh, at night to do their dirty work for them because they're so scared of the people and they won't do it by day. But as usual, Jesus has a challenging and pretty ironic question for those who've come to arrest him. Just look at verse 48. He says to them, am I leading a rebellion? Am I leading a rebellion? See, someone is leading a rebellion here, but it's not Jesus. Throughout his public ministry, Jesus has taught with an amazing, unique authority. He's shown incredible power over sickness, nature, 
evil spirits, even death itself. He's done the things that the, uh, the Old Testament said that the Messiah would do. And he's shown a better grasp of the scriptures than all of the experts. But all along, these religious leaders have refused to accept Jesus' authority. See, Jesus has challenged their self-righteousness, their attempts to appear good. These religious leaders are, are rebelling because they want the authority to define what is good and evil so that they can justify themselves. Time and time again, Jesus has shown them that their hearts are far away from God. They're as much in need of a savior as the sinners that they seem to despise. See, these religious leaders are rebelling against Jesus because they don't want a Lord or a savior. They don't submit to Jesus because it means admitting that they aren't good enough by themselves. Before we're tempted to think that we're okay because we're close to Jesus, we have the reminder in verse 43 that part of this mob is Judas. This is a guy who's been close to Jesus. He's seen Jesus' power and authority. He's seen Jesus' gentleness and compassion. And yet Jesus ends up responding in exactly the same way as the religious leaders who want Jesus dead. We've kind of been expecting this reaction, haven't we? It's been, it's been on the cards for a while. But maybe what's more surprising is what we see next. See, it's not just out-and-out rebellion. We also see the disciples abandon Jesus. In verse 27, Jesus tells the disciples that they're all going to fall away. And that they're shocked. They're indignant at Jesus' suggestion. Verses 29 to 31. And yet, when it comes to it, What happens when Jesus is finally arrested? Verse 50. Everyone deserts him and flees. When the going gets tough, the disciples get going as far away as possible. Like Judas, they have seen Jesus' power, his authority, his gentleness, his compassion. They've seen Jesus restore, forgive, heal, feed, and rule over creation evil, and even death. And when the moment comes for them to show their love and their trust, they run away. Now it seems in verse 31, uh, Peter seems to have understood, uh, and the disciples know that sticking with Jesus may well cost them their lives. After all, Jesus had taught, hadn't he, that uh, his followers must be willing to lose their lives for his sake. But the disciples aren't yet willing to. They love life more than they love Jesus. They fear others and the prospects of death more than they fear Jesus and his judgment. They don't yet believe that knowing Jesus is better than gaining the whole world. They don't yet trust that Jesus' arrest, trial and death can be part of God's sovereign will. And so they run away. The next thing we see is delusion. This is starting to get a bit more subtle. Um, When Jesus tells the disciples that they're all going to fall away, notice particularly Peter's reaction in verse 29. He responds, even if all fall away, I will not. See, Peter does what blokes all over the world do. 
He goes on the attack in order to defend himself. Do you notice the, the deep pride behind his response? Everyone else might hear might be fickle and weak and cowardly, but not me, Jesus. They might all do a runner, but I'm going nowhere. And when Jesus insists that Peter is not only going to run away, he's going to disown Jesus three times. Once again, Peter can't help but defend himself. Verse 31. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Peter is not the first or the last person to talk a big game, to announce his commitment and then be unable or unwilling to follow through on it. All it takes is for the crowd to turn up and arrest Jesus. And suddenly, all these big claims come to nothing. It's not just Peter either, is it? Every single one of them who said they'd never disowned Jesus in verse 31 end up running away by verse 50. Now, we don't know if Peter was genuine, uh, and he fully intended to stick with Jesus to the bitter end. But by verse 50, he'd lost heart and become uh, overcome by fear. Or maybe Peter is not as confident as he appears. His pride and his insecurity has been so wounded by Jesus' suggestion that he's going to disown him, Peter wants everyone to think that he's, he's much stronger than he actually is. And so he, he kind of projects this image of, uh, of being uh, completely devoted and completely faithful. Either way, it's delusion. Either Peter is deluded about his own ability to be faithful to Jesus, or he's trying to delude other people and pretend that he's more faithful than he actually is. Peter's delusion just doesn't measure up to the reality, does it? Despite his claims, he ends up running away. Well, the final way we see people rejecting Jesus is so subtle, you could almost close your eyes and miss it. Falling asleep. Well, if you're anything like me, you think, falling asleep? Surely that's not so bad. In verse 32, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, and he takes Peter, James, and John with him. So what does he ask of them? What difficult test does he uh, put them through? He says, verse 34, stay here and keep watch. But when he comes back to them, they're asleep. Before they were willing to die with Jesus. Now they can't even stay awake to watch him. Each time Jesus returns, the disciples are sleeping. Despite Jesus' immense sorrow, despite Jesus' repeated warnings of his uh, imminent betrayal and death, neither concern for Jesus nor concern for their own faithfulness can stop them from falling asleep. In verses 37 and 38, Jesus draws a direct link between falling asleep and falling into temptation. He says, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. See, falling asleep here is it's a picture of what's going on spiritually. It's failing to see the seriousness of the temptation that the disciples are facing and being alert and prepared for it. See, falling into temptation is so easy. 
It comes as naturally as falling asleep. Jesus even acknowledges this in verse 38. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Jesus tells his disciples to watch and pray because he knows that they're not going to be able to face the temptation to abandon him all by themselves. They need to be praying for God's help, not being fast asleep. Now, it's really easy, isn't it, to look at, uh, for us to look at what happens here and be shocked that people could treat Jesus like this. But when we stop and think about it, we're not actually that different, are we? If rebellion is about when we reject Jesus' authority over our lives, it, and this can be a, a total rejection of Jesus' authority or, or kind of a partial rejection, there's certain areas out of our lives, we, uh, we don't want to accept Jesus' authority. So if you're someone here this morning who is looking into the Christian faith, will you carefully consider whether, as Mark's Gospel seems to show, Jesus is far more than just a good teacher? And that not submitting to his authority is a dangerous and tragic thing to do. And if you are a follower of Jesus here today, are there any areas of your life where you're not completely submitting to Jesus' authority? Is there a persistent sin that you're clinging on to? Are there some aspects of our, our conduct or character in which we're, we're not really interested in becoming more like Jesus Christ? What about abandonment? When we distance ourselves from Jesus, especially when life uh, following him becomes really difficult. So, Christian brothers and sisters, are we ever tempted to distance ourselves from Jesus because we're ashamed of being associated with him or ashamed of some of his teaching? When Jesus' teaching clashes with our society and our culture, which way do we go? Who do we ultimately follow? Or maybe when life is hard, when we're struggling, when we're scared. And we don't understand God's intentions, his purposes in allowing us to go through difficult times. Are we tempted to abandon Jesus, to stop trusting God's goodness and go for the easy life? Life that doesn't involve self-denial, sacrifice and suffering. What about delusion? When we try to convince ourselves or others that we're, we're much stronger, we're much more faithful, we're much more sorted than we actually are. Well, again, brothers and sisters, are we realistic with ourselves? Are we realistic with each other about our weaknesses, about our capacity to give in to temptation? Do we look down on others who are struggling, uh, broken and needy, and, and think that we're somehow better or stronger or more faithful? Do we take pride in our faithfulness, our, our commitment, our service, and wish that people were you know, just a bit more like us? We always seek to be the, the, ones who, uh, the wise ones who dish out the godly advice and the wisdom, but we don't like to be taught or challenged ourselves. Or maybe we know that we're weak and struggling, but we feel like we just have to hold it together. We, we think that if people knew what we were really like, they wouldn't want to have anything to do with us. Maybe we want people to think that we're, this, that we're strong, that we're faithful, we're godly, we're wise. And actually our heart is cold. We're filled with doubts and anxieties. 
And so we project. We pretend to be a lot more saucy than we actually are. Anything to stop people seeing the real me tucked away where no one else can see. What about falling asleep? This is when we drift into temptation because we're just not aware and serious enough about the danger. Well, again, are there any areas in which we're complacent about temptation? Do we know what our weaknesses are? In which areas we're most likely to rebel or abandon Jesus? Or how we delude ourselves? Do we put ourselves into situations where we're more likely to be tempted? Do we look out for and recognize the warning signs of temptation? trouble with all of this though is it's not that easy is it it's a struggle so what's the answer what's the solution well we've we've already seen it jesus really gives it to us on a plate in verse 38 watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak well, I can spend a long time talking about what it means to watch and pray. We need to watch out for temptation and sin in ourselves and one another. We need to come to the Lord in prayer. We can think about how we're not very good at being watchful, and we probably don't take temptation and sin nearly seriously enough. We can think about how we probably don't pray nearly as much as we should. The thing is, I don't want us to go away this morning thinking that this passage means we need to try harder. We need to do better. We need to show more commitment or have more faith. Watching and praying just become two more tasks on the never-ending list of stuff that we've got to try and do this week. Because that would imply that the solution to faithfully following Jesus lies within us. And we just need to unlock it somehow. The solution to following Jesus lies with Jesus himself. Jesus tells his disciples to watch and pray so that they will look to him and come in prayerful dependence to the Heavenly Father. It's not that watching and praying is something that you need to do, but watching and praying is something to remind you of who you need. We need to see how Jesus' story changes everything because He is completely faithful. You see, this section isn't ultimately about betrayal and rejection. It's actually all about Jesus' faithfulness. It's a bit like one of these pictures. Now, if you you look at the uh, the black parts, you kind of see two trees intertwined. But if that's all you look at, then you'll miss in the middle the picture of a girl. This passage is not all about betrayal. It's actually about Jesus' faithfulness. And the betrayal and rejection that we see shows why Jesus' faithfulness and obedience to death was necessary. So we're going to spend the rest of the time considering Jesus' perfect steadfastness and submission. So first of all, we see Jesus is faithful through and steadfast through his sorrow. Just look at verse 33. 
Knowing what lies ahead of him, Jesus is deeply distressed and troubled. His soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Jesus is no stranger to emotion, but we've never seen anything of this level before in Mark's gospel. What's interesting is Jesus' response to his coming arrest, his trial and execution is not to run away, but he goes to the Father who loves him and he prays. And Jesus' prayer shows us why he prays. Firstly, verse 36, Jesus shows who he is praying to. Abba, Father. Now, Abba is the uh, Aramaic word for father, but it has a kind of more informal tone to it, more intimate feel, like daddy or or papa. Uh, Because Jesus knows he's not addressing some uh, far-off, indifferent divine power, but the loving father, the one he has known and loved for all eternity. And because Jesus knows the father, he knows that he can perfectly trust his father's love, his intentions, his will. Next, Jesus prays, everything is possible for you. Nothing is outside God's sovereign control. This is the God who spoke creation into being, the God who's countless times provided for and rescued people in unusual and expected ways, the God who enabled a shepherd boy to defeat a giant, the God who shut the mouths of lions, the God who turned a barren couple into the ancestors of a great nation. Jesus knows that what's happening is not an accident. God is not losing control or falling asleep at the wheel. If everything is possible for God, then what is happening is what God the Father has lovingly and sovereignly determined. Even so, Jesus prays, take this cup from me. He's asking to not have to go through what is about to happen because he knows it's going to be horrific. Yes, is there any other way? What's interesting here is that Jesus has been completely open with the Father. There's no false pride or righteousness. There's no pretending that he's fine with the whole thing. Pretending is pointless anyway, because God knows our thoughts even before we think them. Jesus is struggling, and so he brings the struggle to the Father that he trusts. So this makes what Jesus prays next all the more remarkable. See that at the end of verse 36? Famous words, but I don't think we get the depth of them. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus has recognized God is in control. Nothing is impossible for him. He's brought his sorrow and his distress to the Father. And now he expresses his trust and his obedience. He accepts that the Father's will is for him to go to the cross. This is not easy for, to do. For Jesus, it meant an absolutely horrific ordeal. But he does it because he trusts the loving care and the sovereign will of his Father. Now, human beings are very good at commenting from the sidelines, aren't we? whether it's sports or politics or films or music or TV, or maybe it's just commenting on people's lives in general. 
we believe we could have done something a lot better if we'd, we'd have been given the chance. We'd have given much better advice. We'd have been able to tell someone what to do in that situation. The number of times my football team could have done with listening to my expert advice, but for some reason they never do. How often do we do the same thing with God? Well, Lord, I know you're God and everything, and you can do everything, but I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done it like that, certainly. But if I'm completely unqualified to advise a football team, how much more unqualified am I to comment on the ruler of the universe? See, not trusting God is saying, we know better. But Jesus shows us what true trust looks like. He comes to the Father. He pours out his heart. And then he says, not what I will, but what you will. In other words, Father, your will is better, greater, more glorious. Your will means that a multitude of people can be set free from sin and death. People from all nations can be restored and welcomed into your kingdom. Because Jesus is faithful and obedient, because he trusts the Father and submits to him, he gives us hope. This is because of the scale of what he's about to face. See, Jesus is not just faithful through sorrow, he's faithful through separation. See, at the cross, Jesus was not just facing a brutal execution. He was also facing the cup of God's wrath. It's what Jesus refers to in verse 36 when he says, take this cup from me. Several times in the scriptures, this image of the cup of God's wrath appears. uh, And it's a symbol of God's righteous judgment, his anger, uh, and his wrath, a human rebellion. And to drink from this cup is to take God's wrath and punishment. Now Jesus is about to bear on himself the weight of human sin. And with it, he's going to take all the righteous wrath and fury of God. And in doing so, Jesus is going to experience something that he has never experienced before. Absolute separation from the Father. That he is eternally and perfectly loved. Now, there probably isn't a good enough comparison because there's nothing that is even close to the perfect eternal love of God the Father and God the Son. But we do still feel a deep pain and separation, don't we, when we've lost someone close to us. There's something about the loss of someone that you love that really hurts, just cuts through. When I was uh, 16, my grand died. Uh, she just lived down the road from us, and we were really close. To her. I was numb for weeks. I, just, I felt lost, and I just couldn't, I couldn't cope with the idea that I possibly wasn't going to see her ever again. Even 20 years later, I still miss her massively. Anytime we go near her house, I just want to be able to drop in for a cup of tea and a chat. But I can't, because she's not there. Death brings about a terrible separation that just cuts down relationships. And if I can feel that much hurt and pain from an imperfect relationship that only lasted 16 years, how much more pain must there have been for Jesus? who perfectly loved the Father for all eternity. 
that Jesus' suffering on the cross was on another level altogether. He was facing the darkness and the isolation of being cut off from the Father he loved perfectly. This is staggering. It means Jesus was faithful, even though it meant facing wrath and separation from his Father. That is how much Jesus loves and trusts the Father, that he willingly and faithfully endures the cross. That is how much Jesus loves us, that even as he is betrayed, Jesus is faithful and obedient even to death. Jesus takes our treachery on himself so that we can be welcomed as children. Jesus is cut off so that we can come near to God. Finally, we see Jesus is faithful, even in the dark, even when no one else is watching. Jesus is faithful in the dark. Why is this a big deal? Well, we only really trust people that we think are trustworthy, don't we? And the bigger the matter is, the more trustworthy the person needs to be. You're not going to share a deep personal issue with someone who you know is a gossip. You're not going to buy something really expensive, you know, thousands of pounds over the internet, unless you know that they're not just going to run off with your money. And if you're going to give your whole life to someone, or to something, we want to know that they're going to keep their promises, that it's not going to be a waste. But Jesus shows his complete faithfulness, even in the dark, even when there's no one else there to hear him. He is utterly faithful to what he said he will do. There's no secret persona. There's no hidden agenda or motives. There's no mysterious little um, uh, doll hiding inside all the others. It's completely different. Jesus is the perfect and faithful Lord. Yesterday, today and forever. He does not change. He does not give up. He does not get tired or forget. Jesus is faithful, even under the greatest strain, and even in the dark. Jesus' faithfulness is significant because of what happened in another garden. Right back at the beginning of the Bible, the first humans lived in a perfect garden filled with God's amazing provision. But despite the evidence of God's goodness all around them, they fell for the lies that God is not good, God is not wise, that God is not faithful and trustworthy. Now this was the original rebellion, abandonment and delusion. And ever since, humanity has fallen for the same lies time and time again. God doesn't really love you. God doesn't care about you. God doesn't know best. Even back in that first garden, God promised one who would not fail. One who would resist temptation. One who would trust God and remain faithful, even though it would bring great pain. And here we are, back in another garden. And we see Jesus trusting in the goodness, the wisdom, and the sovereign plan of God. We see Jesus being perfectly faithful and obedient, obedient even to death on a cross. See, Jesus resists the temptation to turn back from the cross. And he willingly lays down his life. He takes on our sin and the wrath and separation from God that it deserves. And because Jesus is completely faithful in the dark, 
in the garden, it means that we can be faithful too. Not just because of Jesus' example and inspiration, but in reality. Here Jesus showed perfect obedience into death on the cross, and that perfect obedience is given to us when we trust in Christ. The amazing good news of the Bible is twofold. Jesus takes upon himself our sin and our rebellion. He suffers the wrath and separation we deserve. But he also gives us his perfect obedience and submission. Jesus' faithfulness becomes our faithfulness. And so the Father no longer looks on us as we deserve, but God sees us with the perfect obedience of of Jesus himself. Romans chapter 5, Paul puts it like this. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Jesus is faithful and obedient so that faithless rebels can have faith. So what difference does this make? If the Gospel of Mark is a story that changes everything, what change should this make to us? What is going to enable us to stay faithful to Jesus, even in difficult and challenging circumstances? Well, ultimately, we need to be captivated by a better vision. Jesus says in verse 38, Watch and pray so you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So often we think that what we need is a change of circumstances. But Jesus says what we need is a change of focus. Temptation works powerfully, much like advertising, because it tells you your life will be so much better if you just have this or if you didn't have that. Jesus tells the disciples, watch and pray. Fix your gaze and your dependence on him instead of focusing on their circumstances and their fears. They fix their gaze and their dependence on the Lord who made them, who sustains them, who loves them, and who faithfully died for them. We watch and pray because we're always going to be tempted to resist and reject Jesus' authority in our lives. But if our eyes are fixed on Jesus and we're expressing our dependence on him in prayer, well, this will help us to remember how much we need Jesus. But also, what a good and loving Lord he is. His authority isn't an oppressive burden. It's the loving rule of a king who gave his life, who bought us with his own blood. We watch and pray because we will always be tempted to distance ourselves from Jesus and his teaching, to run away when our circumstances get too difficult. If our eyes are fixed on Jesus and we're depending on him in prayer, then we're reminded that he is far bigger than any problems that we might face. His wisdom is wiser than whatever the world thinks. And his approval matters more than that of any other person. And we already have that because of what he has done. We watch and pray because we are weak. Because we cannot be faithful. We cannot resist temptation by ourselves. We need to come to the one who succeeded where we fail and trust him. 
we watch out so that we can counter the lies of temptation with the truth of who Jesus is and all that he has done. We pray so that we can bring our struggles, our weakness, and pour out our hearts to our Heavenly Father and express our dependence on him. Brothers and sisters, are we enjoying the immense privilege of being able to approach the Lord of all creation, to gaze upon his beauty, his glory, his faithfulness, and to bring all of our troubles, our struggles, our weaknesses, and our sorrow, and put it into his loving and powerful hands. We need to be captivated by a better vision. A vision that reminds us of the sheer depth of God's love for us, shown in Jesus. A vision that reminds us that we can trust the good and perfect will of God at all times and in all circumstances. No better example of that than at the cross. We need to be captivated by the vision of the gloriously, the perfectly faithful Jesus. As he faithfully prays, yet not what I will, but what you will. He makes it possible for faithless rebels like you and me to be welcomed as precious children. Let's pray.